In the 1985 episode, we have to spend a bit of time talking about the privatisation of the Sydney Swans. The sad and sorry Saints achieve an unwanted record early in the season. Barassi prepares for his final season at the D's. The Pies welcome back a legend and Gary Ablett begins to become the player we all know. All this and more coming up after us. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Podcast, uh, the Australian Rules Football History Podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We have no real qualifications to bring you this show other than a first for knowledge, a desire to relive the past and lots and lots of books. My name's Tim, this is Charlie. Oh, hello, hello. And we're here to talk about the 1985 season. Yes. This will be the last season we cover until we, uh, we're about to switch, take a different track, aren't we? So the last season in which I'm not alive also, Timmy, so it's a nice one to finish on. <laughs> okay, so will we start with... After we've done part one and two of 1985, we'll be switching to a bit of a new format to cover the season that is currently ahead of us. Yes. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that probably later on. But we're here to talk about 1985. Before we do, Charlie, hello listeners in Ireland, Singapore, India, Mexico, Portugal, Thailand. A lot of traction in the US as well. Fantastic. We're spreading through the 50 states. Ha- well, we are. Hello listeners in Michigan, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Virginia, Arizona. Yeah, All right. there seems to be yeah. quite, quite a lot of, a uh, little bit of a buzz. Don't mind that. I, I might use that word, buzz. Um, all right, well, you always get some history to start with. So let's start with the song of the year. Look, there's a lot of Madonna, We Are The World was in there, but my absolute favourite song, actually my wedding dance song, was Power Of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. Oh, that's just um, Back To The Future right yeah. there. God, yeah. that puts me in Number one for two weeks in Australia, end of September. Um, so yeah, that's our song. I'm just thinking, God, can I can I just get on my skateboard and pull myself behind a car? <laughs> I love that. That's a ripper. Yeah. Um, so some news. Yes. All right, Timmy, you ready to hear what happened in '85? Tell me. Big year. All right. Let's start with our three three sort of main sporting things that we like to talk about. Mm-hmm. Stanley Cup, the Super Bowl, and the NBA Finals. Yep. Okay. All right. So Super Bowl 19 in 1985. Remember, this is for the winner of the 1984 season. We've yep. had that conversation a few times. So this was between the San Francisco 49ers and the Miami Dolphins. Yep. Uh, the 49ers defeated the Dolphins 38-16 to to win their second Super Bowl. It was played at Stanford Stadium and uh, it was only the second time that it was played in the home market of one of the participants, which doesn't happen that often. It's always a coincidence. Year, 2022, in the LA, LA Rams. I think, I think it's happened a few times, very but very, very rarely, because yeah. it's always, yeah, it's a lottery, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there you it's go. It's like a bidding system, like the Olympics. Like the Olympics. Uh, the NBA Finals uh, was between the Eastern Conference champions, Boston Celtics, and the Western Conference champions, the LA Lakers. What a matchup, yep. as always. Yep. But finally, the Lakers were able to t- to get the win, four to two. What do you mean finally? They won the uh, the nineteen eighty. 
Uh, and in the Stanley Cup in the NHL, uh, we did talk last year about the fact that the Edmund Oilers, Oilers won their first. Of Great course, team. they won their second. I believe they end up winning four or five in a row. Uh, but they won um, eight, eight to three in the final game to win the final series, four games to one, and win the Stanley Cup. Again, Gretzky, I believe, was again best in series. Unsurprisingly. Uh, so let's hear about a few things that happened in Australia this year. So we have Victoria celebrating its 150th anniversary. Yes, we do. Mm. And we'll talk about that next episode as well. The 4th of June, officially. Yeah, we will talk yeah. about that in our next episode, of course. Uh, we had the merging of Coles and Meyer to create the Coles-Meyer Group, which okay. is still around today. It is. On the 5th of September, we had John Howard replacing Andrew Peacock as the federal liberal leader and so the opposition leader. Um, on the 20th of September, the capital gains tax was introduced. A lot of people would be angry about that one now, mm. I bet. Um, on the 3rd... On the 26th of October, we had the Mutajulu Aboriginal community uh, given freehold title to Ayers Rock, or Uluru as it's yeah. now known, and the Uluru National Park. Uh, we also, in the NSWRL, we had the Canterbury Bulldogs defeating the minor premiers, the St George Illawarra, Illawarra Dragons, or the St George Dragons at that time, 7-6 to win the premiership. Uh, it was also the consecutive, second consecutive premiership for Canterbury. The Illawarra, Illawarra Steelers finished in last, claiming the wooden spoon. On the 3rd of November, we had the very first Formula One Australian Grand Prix taking place on the streets of Adelaide. Of course. Uh, on the 5th of November, what a nuisance winning the Melbourne Cup. Um, and we had this year Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome released. Oh, sweet. Good movie. Classic Australian. Peter Weir, of course, we needed to have. Uh, would you like to hear about some people that were born this year? Always. Of course. On the 28th of January, we had Libby Trickett, the swimmer. Uh -huh. The Olympic swimmer. Uh, 30th of January, Richie Port, the cyclist. Uh, on the 29th of S September, we had Michelle Payne, the uh, Melbourne Cup winning jockey. And on the 16th of October, we had Casey Stoner, the fantastic motorcycle racer. So there you are. Great. That's our year. All right, league news. Because it's football season And that's the reason It's the time of the year that we love Right, league news Now the biggest bit of league news we probably have Is changes at the top Yes um, So in August Of the previous year um, There was a report handed down Criticising the league's decision making process And in October of 1984 it Delivered its recommendations one of those was that a five-member commission be set up to independently run the game, freeing the clubs to pursue their dream of winning the flag without the added burden of having to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, so while all this was going down, Alan Aylett was overseas. He was in Ireland with a touring team over there. Oh, and so they've thought this is the perfect time to sneak, try and sneak it in behind his back. Um, Yes and no, but also uh, Jack Hamilton, his second in command, has kind of usurped his position here. Oh. So on November 7, the clubs appointed a subcommittee to investigate the task force, force's recommendations. Two weeks later, Hamilton was officially appointed the game's first full-time commissioner, and then it became also clear to Aylett that he would not be given any of the roles as part-time commissioner of the game. Oh, wow. So he was kind of edged out there with Jack Hamilton becoming the first commissioner 
And Alan Aylett's kind of finishing. He's still in charge of the NFL. Yes. Um, not for long, though. But that's probably the biggest change. When this is... not Sorry, not quite yet, but this is when the NFL is starting to lose control of the... Like the AFL are really yes, well they've taking got some charge as we'll hear in a minute. They've got not some the recommend- AFL yet, sorry, the VFL. But and, yes, yeah, well they've got some recommendations as how this national league might look. Um, but here's here's a bit more news about that. So the VFL obtains a sixty thousand dollar grant from the federal government for a feasibility study on national football. This was conducted by John Adams with strong support from Western Australia. In May, St Kilda actually rejected an offer from Perth businessman Alan Delaney to buy the Saints and move them to Perth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In October. The league adopts the Blue Report, uh, entitled VFL Football, establishing the basis for future success, which said in part the underlying causes of the difficulties of the last few years are largely external to the game itself and to its management. In fact, if anyone were to be held responsible for the problems of the competition, there would be two culprits. The first being the changing activity patterns in society. The second being the inevitable consequences of change from a near amateur to a near professional competition. The current focus on the game itself, violence, evenness, facilities, prices, or its management, club and VFL competence, are distractions from much more fundamental problems which need to be addressed. In November, John Adams delivers his report. Major recommendations include a 12-team competition, eight from Victoria, two from Adelaide, one from Perth and Sydney each. November 7th, the NFL releases its own play for a national competition with a 12-team structure featuring nine teams from Melbourne and one each from Sydney, Perth and Adelaide. It also proposed an independent form of administration rather than the VFL's Melbourne-centred power base. The Waffle supports the NFL option going so far as to send its CEO to talk to Macquarie Bank in Sydney about getting $100 million to float a competition with six Melbourne clubs saying they'd break away. Ah. Um, later in the year, also Paul Cronin approaches the Queensland government to ascertain the degree of support for a team in a national competition. And in December, all clubs signed license agreements with the league. But let's get to the 1985 season, Let's get started. Uh, Working up from the bottom to the top. As we always do. And unfortunately, down the bottom with the wooden spoon is St Kilda. Uh, So, uh, with their three wins and 19 losses, 64.7% they're basically being flogged. Well, um, coached by Graham Jelly and captain by Trevor Barker still. Yes, so Graham Jelly coaching the club after Daryl Baldock had been appointed and had to back out because he was a uh, he was a senator, he was a member of parliament but down yes, there yeah. and had responsibilities, so he had to finish those commitments. Um, some debutants include Indigenous player Greg McAdam from Alice Springs, who's related to Greg and uh, to Adrian and Gilbert. Yes, um, Andrew Manning, Enrico Misso, hey. and Peter Brown. Um, now, round one. So, Saints supporters, this is a really depressing start to the season. So, if you don't want to listen, now's the time to kind of skip. <laughs> um, round one, as a result of their 110-point thrashing at the hands of Sydney, St Kilda was immediately relegated to bottom of the ladder and, as a result, stayed there all season. Oh. Round two, they lost to the Blues by 140 points. Questions were asked in the press if they were actually worth having in the VFL. We haven't, we haven't heard that chat for about 100 years, have we? Round three, yeah. wow. 113 point loss to the Tigers. So in the first three rounds, they have an unwanted record of three consecutive losses by 100 points. Still um, the record? A combined 363 points across those three games. Sorry, was that, is that still the rec- record? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Wow. Their percentage at the end of that round was 34.7. Oh, well, they doubled it, so that's good. Yeah. Um, round five, though, 
after being smashed on the ground and in the papers, the Saints actually won their first game of the year, knocking off the Lions at Waverley by four points. They almost undid their 19-point lead in the first quarter by not scoring a goal in the second. <laughs> but six goals to four in the last quarter earned them their win. Paul Moorwood was the star here. And then what followed next was, was 11 straight losses. Um, it should be noted, though, between round 10 and 17, Tony Lockett kicked an incredible 46 goals, four behinds. That's amazing. How's the accuracy? And that team, is like, wow. Mm. Yeah. And he's 19. Yeah. Um, then in round 16, the return match against the Lions at Victoria Park, the Saints earned their second win of the season. They jumped the Lions early in the first quarter, had five goals on the board before the Lions even knew what to hit them. But the Lions came charging back. Saints were able to take control of the game from there, and in a heart-stopping finish, they held on to win by six point, by nine points. The Saints fans jumping in the stands. Phil Narkel was best on ground. Lockett with four goals. Sorry, Lockett with four marks, five kicks, five goals. So interesting, they've only beat the Lions. Yeah. Leading into the final round of the season, the Saints hadn't won a game at Moorabbin, which they'd never done. They'd always at least won a home game. Yep. And uh, they were taking on second on the ladder team, Footscray. Saints pro- faced the prospect of not winning a game at home ever in this season. Um, so Graham Jelly used this to spur his team on, and boy, didn't they grab that... Uh, Bulldog by the scruff of the neck there. Um, they got the, they didn't get the lead to the last quarter when Gary Odges socketed through a goal, but the crowd erupted and the Saints went on to win by three goals. Thank God. So finishing the season off with a win, but she's ugly. ugly, ugly season. Um, I'm really glad there were a few moments there where you're like, and then they did have a win against. I was really hoping you weren't going to say <laughs> Melbourne, so that's good. All right. Speaking of Melbourne. Yeah, well, oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the lead goal kicker at St Kilda, unsurprisingly, was Tony Lockett with 79, which is incredible from a team who's finished That's that low. Roy Park-esque. He's an ace. My man. Um, and the Trevor Barker Award in 1985 went to Paul Morwood. Yes, he had a great season. Um, so that takes us up the ladder. And the reason I was so worried I was going to hear Melbourne's name was that is exactly where they are. With six wins and 16 losses... Uh, percentage of 77.8 coached by uh, Ronald Dale Barassi and captained by Robbie Flower yes alright some debutants include Robin White Joseph Rugolo Stephen Newport Daryl Burke Darren Lutet David Alday um, and Sean Wright which I thought you might want to talk about Charlie I I would absolutely love to uh, so Sean Sean Wright was scouted by the Melbourne Football Club's Ron Barassi and Barry Richardson on a visit to Ireland in 1982 as having the potential to play Aussie Rules. Uh, Before playing Aussie Rules, he, of course, played Gaelic football with the Kerry Minor Under-18s team, which reached the final of the 82 All-Ireland Minor Football Championship uh, uh, and also played with the Listowel Emmets Club. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong and I apologise. Uh, Wright was brought to Australia in 83 and he was part of an under-19 VFL premiership side just weeks after his arrival from Ireland um, and was widely hailed for his rapid conversion to the game and, jeez, didn't we love to watch him. Yeah. All right, the MCC threw the Demons off the MCG and forced them to use the Junction Oval as a training base. So this is when it all falls apart. Yeah, so North Melbourne was increasing their use of the MCG as, as was Richmond, so... I guess they're worried about the impact on the ground with yep. all these clubs training on it. Um, so access to the newly renovated venue with lush turf was initially seen as a bonus before the Oval's cricket commitments began to infringe on pre-season mm-hmm. training. 
Um, the MCC paying for the move was a bonus, considering the club was so desperate for funds. That ah. Round one, the Demons used strong tactics to put Fitzroy off their game. It partially backfired when best on ground Peter Moore was reported for striking, the first charge he'd ever faced. Uh, he escaped with a severe reprimand due to his good record. Ron Barassi, however, was fined $2,000 for commenting on the case before they were heard, hmm. suggesting he'd be amazed if either player was rubbed out. Okay. David Cordner and Brian Wilson dominated the forward line with six and seven goals, respectively. The Ds beat the Lions by 26 points. Uh, round four, after struggling against the Bulldogs for three quarters, the undermanned Demons broke free in the last quarter of a game played in 30-degree heat. In his 100th league game, Brian Wilson kicked three goals when the game was in the balance in the last term. He finished with five goals, six for the match. Peter Moore and Robbie Flower both ended up at Epworth Hospital here. Moore with a damaged neck ligament suffered in the second quarter and, fa- and Flower with a fractured collarbone after being ridden into the ground by Neil Cordy. Round five against the Blues, it was a win for a, it was a win for the depth players. So obviously missing Flower, Jarrett and Peter Moore. Also missing Alan Johnson, Greg Healy went down on form. Fringe players like Robin White, Daryl Cox, Danny Hughes and Rod Grinter were forced to step up in done. their absence and carried their side to an important win. Carlton held a narrow lead at half-time but blew the Blues away with a 9-goal 6 to 4-goal 5 third quarter to take control. The final margin was 29. Uh, round 7, they had a loss to Geelong and Brassy reacted savagely by axing six players from the side. So against the Saints in round 8, in a tough and aggressive game, the Saints were strong in the opening quarter but switched off after that with the Demon defence keeping the Saints to four behinds in the second quarter. The Demons were able to get on top and run away to a comfortable 52-point win. Round 10, with the Swans trying to play negative football, Brian Wilson was switched onto the ball from full forward, but it was Barassi's other tactical masterstroke which got his side over the line. Uh, With scores level at the last break, he switched Peter Giles from half-back flank to centre-half forward, and Giles used his height to help guide Melbourne to a 17-point win. Nice. After eight losses on the trot, the Demons then travelled to Moorabbin to take on the Saints. Halfway through the second quarter, they led by 35 points, but the Saints chipped away at this lead. And Ten minutes into the third quarter... Uh-oh, Charlie, they're in front. Uh, with scores level at three-quarter time, though, the Saints collapsed and would fail to score in the last term. Uh, and Melbourne's single goal was enough to get them over the line by nine points. The victory here at Moorabbin was Barassi's last win as a Demons coach. Ah, that's disappointing. What a terrible mm. win to go out on. All right, and after the round 22 loss to the Tigers... Um, fronting a sombre press conference, Barassi said, Cheer up, it's not as though there's a death in the family. It was his 710th VFL game as a player or coach, and it seemed it would be his last. It was very moving to me to feel the good vibrations from the crowd, he said. That was very nice, considering their expectations had not been fulfilled. It was a mighty fine thing and allayed some of my fears about football. The people who follow it are good people. There are a lot of things wrong with football at the moment, but the people in the crowds are not one of them. And you've got a little bit of a poem here to share, Charlie. I do, I do. It's, it's lovely. I, know, right. I, love, I love hearing you read your poems, Tree. Mm. So, well, Barras, the time has come to bid you fond farewell. From your mother club, the mighty D's, the team you love like hell. With many sprays and many blues, you trod on many toes. Some couldn't take it on the chin, but that's the way it goes. Try so hard, we really did, to fulfil your lifelong dream. To see us make the finals, to hear our supporters scream. But do not leave this club you love with despondence and despair. It can only make a better club to know that you were there. To those who could not make the choice, whether you were saint or sinner, to the Melbourne team of 85, you'll always be a winner. It's a bit sad to see him go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
with the hindsight of where we are now, we know that the Demons will make a prelim in two years' time and grand final in three years' time. So, yep. So all his hard work has not been for nothing. For nothing, exactly. It's just a shame he didn't stick around there to... Uh, to do it himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so our lead goal kicker down at Melbourne this year was Brian Wilson with 40. And the Bluey Truscott Award in 85 went to Danny Hughes with Jared Healy coming second. Excellent. Uh, so that takes us up the ladder to 10th spot where we have Sydney. Uh, with same as Melbourne, six wins, 16 losses, but a much healthier percentage of 94.5. Coached by Swooper Northy and captained by Mark Browning. All right, so Charlie, before we get stuck into the Swan season, there's a lot of stuff happening off-season off here. Oh, isn't there oh, just? Off the field, I suppose I should say. Um, so let's kind of go through that chronologically as we try to make yeah. sense of what's happening. And it really did happen this year. It did, didn't it? Like yeah. it really started at the very, very beginning of the year. Look, there were, there were whispers of this privatisation yes. coming in, but yep. this, we're trying to go through this as much as we can. Yeah. Uh, so January 9th, Melbourne Herald reveals that Sydney's Dr. Jeffrey Edelston had offered to pay for the, off the Swans $1.4 million debt to the VFL and finance the entire operation of the club. Initial offer believed to be more than $2 million. And so then five days later, a Sydney businessman... Uh, living in Melbourne, apparently, emerges another party who was interested in the takeover of the Swans. Mm, two days later, January 16, Dr. Edelson withdraws offer after Sydney Swans elect to refer question of private ownership to the VFL Commission. And VFL appointed Swans Board and, and the VFL appointed Swans Board. Melbourne-based Richard Platt, Pratt disclosed as an interested party in takeover efforts. Really? That's very interesting. Um the next day, Edelson asked the Sydney Swans VFL appointed committee of management to urgently reconsider his $3 million offer to buy the club. So he's gone up a yeah. bit more. Uh, Edelson stated he put down six hundred grand initially, $1.7 million to debts to be recouped in 18 months, and then 250000 on Sydney promotion and one and a quarter million to buy players over the next three years. Mm. So three million over three years, basically. January thirtieth, a third syndicate of Sydney businessmen, later revealed as the Basil Sellers Syndicate, put its bid into the emerging million-dollar battle to privately buy the Sydney Swans. When the VFL-appointed board met for the first time in Sydney, Doctor Edelson. <laughs> when the VFL-appointed board met for the first time in Sydney, Doctor Edelson complained he is being shunned and has not had a single phone call from the board of management. And we know that this is because he's he's viewed, you know, they're not sure where the money is, right? And he's potentially, yeah. or, or maybe they're deliberately stalling yeah, to get as much money. Get as a bit of a Dutch auction sort of situation yeah. going on. Um, then we move a couple of weeks later on the 11th of February, Dr. Edelson personally signs disenchanted Swans forward Warwick Kappa to a three-year $100,000 contract guaranteeing employment uh, and accommodation. So following his talks with Edelston, VFL chief Jack Hamilton goes on record forecasting that as far as the Swans are concerned, it is almost inevitable that they move into private so ownership. How is he signing Kappa here if he doesn't own the club yet? I don't understand. Maybe as a he's, private contractor? Yeah, maybe he's starting he's, to... Like, he's, like trying to get some goodwill or something? Yeah, yeah, I don't possibly. know. It's, it seems very strange. March 18th, Jeffrey Edelston's bid believed to be now $4 million. He divulges that Bob Skilton, former Swans champion, will become a paid consultant and director and a member of the club's advisory board, which is expected to include former New South Wales Consumer Affairs Minister Sid Einfeld. 
Millionaire businessman Larry Adler, New South Wales AFL President Daryl Smith, and SFL President Jeff Thomas. All right. Then at the start of April, we've got uh, Dr. Edelson inviting the Sydney media to his Borkham Hills Medical Centre to await the expected announcement after receiving inside information. However, <laughs> the board deferred its decision. Mm. April 16th, Collingwood President Ronald McDonald writes to the VFL Commissioner and the 11 other VFL clubs blasting the VFL Commission for not providing enough information to league directors about the ailing Sydney-based club. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, Collingwood complaining about something the AFL's doing. <laughs> uh, the 22nd of May, we got the leaks to the media had been exaggerated and in real terms, the Edelston offer was only actually $1.4 million. Uh, meeting two days earlier in the belief that the sellers group would be forced to withdraw from the race, McKay, Pritchard and Edelston decide to increase the offer by a further million. The offer now publicly stands at $5.8 million, the additional million being offered for distribution to the other 11 VFL clubs. Yeah, see, look, the, the VFL, the commission's holding off and look what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 27th of May, Edelston claims the VFL finance director, Michael Tiley... Tilly? Tilly. Michael Tilly has told Sydney Swans board expected a loss for the season that will be at least $600,000, taking club's deficit to $2 million. So uh, then on the 3rd of June, no decision still being made. Edelson raises the offer again to now 6.3, saying, I'll raise you half a million and I'll see you and raise you half a million, basically. Right, 4th of July, Pritchard coins the name Power Play for a new group and starts work full-time with Edelston. Then uh, a couple of weeks later, we've got an exclusive in the Melbourne Herald uh, by Mike Sheehan revealing the internationally respected financial and management consultants of Touche Ross uh, in their independent review of the financial affairs of Dr. Edelston stated in a letter delivered in early July to Commissioner Jack Hamilton saying that we are of the opinion that Dr. Edelson has the capacity to fund the proposed financial commitments. It's a really good point. Like, you'd want to make sure that he could <laughs> put his money where his mouth is. So the 31st of July, 1985, the Victorian Football League took only two hours to sell the Sydney Swans to football-mad Sydney Dr. Geoffrey Edelson for an estimated $6 million. The Australian reported the following morning. It continued his beautiful wife, Leanne, threw herself into his arms and kissed him. His business manager, Mr. Bob Pritchard, did... No, he didn't do the same. Um, the marketing <laughs> man who helped mastermind the takeover gave him a huge hug. Less than an hour later at his Dural home, Edelston reveals to Pritchard that the funds required were not readily available. A list of possible sources of funds was then compiled. That is outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the next day, contact starts with potential investors in the following weeks. Uh, Perth accountant Robert uh, Mitrovich on behalf of the Sydney-based investment firm Westec, agreed to fund the purchase of the Sydney Swans from the VFL. Mm. Um, on the 13th of September, Sydney Swans owner dismissed the allegations that he was purported, purportedly linked with an import and trafficking of narcotics, pornography and vice activities and the exportation of fauna as ludicrous. <laughs> so some people trying to undermine yep. uh, Edelston there. And then on the 2nd of October, there was a meeting at the Sydney Hilton of 600 Swans members uh, where there was a vote for the proposal to buy the new club. Of the 600 people there, only three people voted against the decision. Um, and Edelson told the members it was the start of a new era 
21st of October, the VFL receives a pledge that the Sydney Swans will adhere to its $1.2 million salary cap for the 86 and 87 seasons. On the 31st of October, we had Edelson handing over the cheque for $1.4 million to the Chief Commissioner, taking the total payout to $3 million. The licensing agreement is then signed, giving Dr Edelson control of the club. 13th of November, it is revealed that Edelson is not the sole owner of the Sydney Swans. The Swans VFL licence is owned by the public company Powerplay International Limited through its subsidiary, uh, subsidiary company Kemsit Podiatry Limited. Dr Edelson has obtained joint venture partners in Powerplay whose major asset is the licence to field a VFL team. Interested parties include a Perth and Sydney-based investment group called Westec Limited, which is chaired by Dr Michael Michaels. Dr Michael, why would you call him Michael? <laughs> the Lord Mayor of Perth, Power Place Director, was listed as Dr Edelson, Dr Alan Aylett, Mr Bob Pritchard, Mr Philip Grimaldi, and Mr Robert Nitschevich, who is a director of Westex. So Dr Aylett, Alan Aylett. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, in early December, we had The Age revealing that the, 11, the other 11 clubs each received just over $250,000 from the $2.9 million purchase paid by the Sydney Swans. So only three clubs, Geelong, Essendon and Carlton, were able to show a surplus without that cash from Sydney. <laughs> so Edelson then at that same time replaces John Keogh as the Sydney VFL director and he was also asked to provide details surrounding the signing of Richmond's Maurice Rioli by the Swans. Mm, that's something we'll get into next. Yeah. Well. Whenever we get to 1987, eight, no, the 1986 season. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, December 5th, at a Sydney Town Hall function hosted by Lord Mayor Alderman Doug Sutherland, a four-year, $3 million sponsorship deal with the Hoover Corporation was announced with a $1 million, with $1 million earmarked towards promotion of the code throughout New South Wales and half a million towards development of junior football in New South Wales schools. Uh, and then we had, on the 14th of December... The front page of the Melbourne Sun declared Edelston is negotiating to purchase a $4.5 million Boeing 707 to fly the Sydney Swans team to and from its Melbourne matches, a private plane for the Swannies. Um, 17th of December, Melbourne Sun quotes Edelston as saying, the Swans has only two voting members, myself as a chairman and a Powerplay subsidiary, which I control. Powerplay, through a subsidiary, owns the licence and it has sub-licensed it to the Swans, which I have 100% of. I'm certainly not broke. I've still got 10 luxury cars and a helicopter. My lifestyle hasn't changed. I continue to pour more of my own money into the Swans, over $3 million from my own personal wealth. And so there's a bit more... Oh, this continues into the next year. Into the next year. But let's not get into that now. Yeah, there's a bit more coming into the next year. But yeah, so it just just seems like an absolute... You know, mess from yep. the beginning, doesn't it? With all yep. these different things, the deal's there, but he doesn't actually have the cash, so he brings these other people in. Yeah. Who knows what's going on, really? Mm. All the matters to the VFLs—they got the money. And unsurprising, with all that happening, that Sydney finish where they do this year. Yeah. All right. Let's go through some. So they got a new coach, as you said, Sweeper Northy. Mm-hmm. Um, after Bob Hammond rejected overtures for a full-time call-up. Round one saw a sizzling start to the season. Matched up against the Saints, they won by 110 points with 23 goals to six after quarter time. The Swans got a massive win led by Bernie Evans' nine goals in an otherwise even team performance. Round two, they made it two in a row with a win over Richmond despite some off-field negotiations rocking the boat in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Uh, They recovered to beat the Tigers at the MCG. Despite being held goalless in the last quarter, they won by four points. In a round five loss to the Pies, Warwick Kappa was reported for time-wasting and fined only $500. Yeah. 
Can't have wasted too much time then. <laughs> in the round, in the lead up to round six, the SCG Trust barred the Swans from training on their ground, but it mattered little as a confident Swans team destroyed the visiting Bulldogs at the SCG. From the outset, the Swans ran circles around the Dogs, and by quarter time, it was eight goals to one. And an eight-goal final quarter sealed a memorable win. Rod Carter kept Simon Beasley goalless, while Barry Mitchell kicked six goals and had 24 disposals. Round 11, guess who's back? Barry Round. Hey! Back for his first game of the season in a loss to the Bombers. But in the next round, round 12, they broke a five-game losing streak to reignite their season. Uh, Barry Round making his return to the SCG, kicking three goals. Um, there are only three points in it at halftime, but the Swans then piled on eight goals in the third quarter to take control of the match and win by 67 points. That game was surprisingly against St Kilda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should, I should have done the maths there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, Bernie Evans with four goals. Um, the next round, it was a, sorry, it was another vintage Barry Round performance in round 13. Um, he was the impetus for the Swans' win over the Tigers at the SCG. He kicked five goals to lead the Swans to a 77-point win. The first loss to the Sw- the Tigers' first loss to the Swans at the SCG. Paul Hawke was excellent with 36 disposals. Nice. Um, round 21, Warwick Kappa had a day out against the Demons at the SCG. He booted seven goals in a 68-point win. The Swans tallied score of 24 goals, 21. 165 was their highest ever score against the Demons and also their last win of the season. And there we go. Uh, so, unsurprisingly, Warwick Kappa was the lead goal kicker for Sydney this year with 45. Uh, and the Bob Skilton medal in 85 went to Stephen Wright. For the first time. Nice. Mm. So, that takes us up to ninth place. We, we have Fitzroy. Those Lions with seven wins, 15 losses, and 93.8%. Coached by Robert Walls and captained by Mark Browning. Debutants include Darren Murphy, Paul Tilly, Tony Spasopoulos, Scott McIver, Shane Hallis, Phil Knight, David Crutchfield, and a name we know quite well, Ross Lyon. Ross Lyon, absolutely. Uh, so, Rossi grew up in the northern Melbourne suburb of Reservoir. In 84, he was selected to Tour Island with the Australian schoolboys team. He was renowned for his hard bumping and strong tackling, and he earned himself the nickname Whispering Death from teammates for his hard-hitting approach. That is terrifying, isn't it? Uh, fun fact, his father, Maury Lyon, played four games for South Melbourne in the 1953 VFL season. There you go. Um, so off-field, the club was constantly at war with their club ground management and facing its perennial financial problems. It was forced mm-hmm. to investigate other options, playing games at the Junction Oval. But like, as we know, St Kilda had to move out because of the cricket club. Yes. Um, now we have seen, now we're seeing Fitzroy do the same. The real crunch came when they got a note from the fire services saying that the, uh, the Blackie Ironmonger grandstand at the Junction Oval was condemned and they'd have to spend around $800,000 to repair it. Oh. They'd be, they would have been happy to stay at the Junction Oval if it wasn't for a lack of decent landlord at the cricket club. So the Lions became co-tenants with this must really hurt them, the Magpies. Victoria, oh. Victoria Park. Um, so the Lions didn't win their first match until round three. And it was their fir- the first game of the season at the SCG against the Swans. A 10-goal five first quarter set up an eventual 51-point win. The Lions kicking 26-15-171. Matt Rendell, the sharpshooter with six goals straight. In round seven at Victoria Park, Fitzroy took advantage early of the Pies' injuries to crush them by 79 points. Their score of 25 goals, 10, 160 was their highest ever against the Pies. By half time, they kicked 16 goals, 5. Uh, Quinlan with 4 and Paul Ruse was immense in the middle. 
The Lions made it two in a row with a confidence-boosting win over the Dogs. Only five to ten points separated the two teams for most of the game, most of the day. But the class of Paul Roos, Gary Pert, and Scotty Clayton shone through to win the day by 14. And please, Coach Robert Walls. Round 11, the Lions turned in a six-goal final quarter to beat the Cats at Cardinia Park. After scores were level at three-quarter time, Doug Barwick had a terrific game with 36 with 39 disposals, six marks and two goals, while Superboot kicked eight goals at four. Round 12, line spearheaded by a lively rover, Leon Harris proved too strong for disappointing Demons at Waverley. Mm. The Lions broke away to a five-goal lead in the first quarter and did not let the Demons back into the match. The final margin was 34 points. Round 14, the Lions overcame the Swans at Vic Park, but had to struggle all afternoon to shake the determined Swans off. Uh, the Lions showed too much class in the end to win by 15 points. Quinlan with four goals, five. Now, around this time, Mickey Conlon, we know Lions legend, was battling injuries and was dropped to the reserves and took it upon himself to have the weekend off instead okay. of uh, playing for the juniors. Ah. Um, so he was effectively on one leg after an operation, but um, he got dropped. Um, so he said to Walls, you know, um, you didn't play. He's like, what's the point of me playing in the seconds on one leg? I need to rest. Yep. And they argued about it back and forth. He didn't think he should be playing. Robert Wall said he should have been playing. He didn't even turn up. Um, and yeah, he took a couple of weeks off. Um, so a bit of angst there between those two players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but funny because nowadays that's what would happen. You, you, you hundred percent. Yeah. You just you'd be rested for yeah, sure. Yeah. It probably probably more about just him making the decision rather than to, just not showing up for the yeah. game is probably not ideal. In, a, right? in an interview with him later on, he's like, "Yeah, I should have at least gone to the game." Yeah, not yeah. a good not a good look when you're trying to you know you've got younger players. Coming yeah, through. yeah. Um, round eighteen, they took on the Pies again, home game at the Victoria Park. The Pies pre-game banner read something along the lines of Fitzroy not being co-chance but uninvited guests at Victoria Park. <laughs> Robert Walls used this to rev his team up and the Fitzroy pressure was too good for the Pies. Harris with five goals, Rendell and Barwick were excellent and they ended the Pies' chances of finals, I believe, with this win. Oh, they would have been happy about that. Yes. Um, the Lions lost their final four games of the season, including the Round 22 game, which was Bernie Quinlan's 350th match. Now, Walls announced his resignation in the rooms after the game. He told reporters that six weeks earlier, he'd informed players and the chairman of the match committee, George Coates, that he would not go on as coach if the team did not improve. Three weeks later, the players had a secret meeting and voted unanimously they wanted him to stay. But Wall, And Walls said the vote changed his thinking, but then he heard nothing from the board, so decided to walk. Yep. And that's Fitzroy's season. That's Fitzroy. Uh, so lead goal kicker at Fitzroy was Bernie Quinlan with 84 at that stage of his career, pretty yeah. incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And the Mitchell Medal in 1985 went to Paul Roos for the first time. So that moves us up the ladder to Richmond in eighth spot with nine wins, 13 losses, and 91.2%. There's a lot of... It's pretty tight down the bottom there. Uh, coached by um, Paul Sproul and captained by Mark Lee. All right, Graham Bond oversees all Richmond summer training while the club awaits the arrival of new coach Paul Sprayer. Ian Wilson, also some big news off-field, left as president on March 25th to be replaced by former player Barry Richardson. Yep. But to their season proper, round one, the Tigers put in a gallant effort against the Bombers, but despite Michael Roach's seven goals four, they couldn't get over the Dons. Their first win came in round three, and what a win it was against a helpless St Kilda. 
The Tigers piled on 31 goals, 25, 211 to win by 113 points. Roach with six goals, six. Stephen James, five goals, four. And the Flea with five straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, round four against the Lions at Vic Park. It was another win, this time by 17 points. Mark Eustace and Michael Roach with four goals each. Round five, they continued to roll on their merry way, this time against the Hawks. The Tigers piled on another avalanche of goals, 29 of them, in fact, to beat the Hawks by 39 points. Roach the star with thir- 11 goals, three. Round six, uh, they rode into the game against the Pies in top form and led from start to finish. Six goals to Roach and 30 disposals each to Rioli and John Anir. Saw them win by 18. And this win had them at second spot on the ladder. But then four straight losses followed. Ah. In round 11, little-known Richmond rover Daryl Vernon was best on ground in a 20-point win over the Swans. Um, the Swans took a five-goal lead early, with four goal, but with four goals in seven minutes, the Tigers were back into the game. Vernon racked up 23 kicks, six handballs, four marks, and was excellent in defence. But a huge loss in this game was Tiger Ruckman Mark Lee, who injured his leg, I believe, and would miss the rest of the season. This was a huge loss. Round 14, the Tigers won against the Saints at Moorabbin, leading at every change to the final margin. Six goals, Morris Rioli instrumental. Uh... Richmond coach Paul Sproul was delighted with his team's round 15 win over the Lions, especially their second half when they overcame a four-goal lead. The Tigers kicked 14 goals to the Lions' seven, Roach kicked six, and the win gave them a sniff of September. But again, five consecutive losses put an end to that thought. They won their final two games of the season against the Cats by 32 and Demons by 41. But all was not well with the Tigers. Uh, post-season, Barry Richardson resigned as president after just one year, and then shortly after that, Paul Sproul did the same. It's all imploding again. So at the end of that season, Richmond's leading goal kicker was Michael Roach with 80 goals and the Jack Dyer medal in 85 went to Trevor Poole. So in seventh spot, we've got Collingwood missing out, as we mentioned with Fitzroy when you just spoke about them before, missing out on finals after last year being bundled out. Right? Yeah, well, they got rid of their coach. I mean, yeah, it's a big change. Are they, are they happy mm. Ten wins, twelve losses, hundred point eight percent. Coached by Bob Rose, captained by Mark Williams. Couple of great names there. All right. After David Parkin and John Kennedy rejected their overtures, the Pies looked back to Bob Rose as a coach knocking him in for a one-year deal. He decreed earlier that Pye's biggest weakness was aggression. Anybody who cannot stand in the heat can get out of the kitchen, he said. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to win premierships unless we are fair dinkum about it. I'm easy to get along with, but I won't be if we don't give what we should. Brian Taylor was poached from Richmond, and in some sad news, Fonz Kine passed away in the free season. Round one, the Pies took on the Kangaroos at the Roos' new home ground of the MCG on a Friday night cracker under lights, the new MCG multi-million dollar stadium lighting. 65,000 people came to watch a sleek, taut and terrific Pies team beat the Roos by 38 points. They then travelled down to Caledonia Park to take on the Cats and led by seven goals to BT. They had a third big quarter of the Pies triumphant by 23 points. Yep. Round three. With the match against the D's being played on a scorching 33-degree day, the hottest April temperature in Melbourne since 1938, it was expected that one or both of the teams would wilt before the final siren at Victoria Park. However, instead they played the match of the day and the two sides fought it out until the last few minutes. Uh, The lead changed five times in the last quarter, but it was the Demons who kicked themselves out of it by wasting chances, the Pies winning by 10. Um, Quite literally, players were fighting. Danny Hughes and Brian Taylor were... Uh, had fought a running battle throughout the game. Brassie proud of young Hughes for standing up for himself. 
They put in a much better showing against the Bombers in round four than they had in that uh, preliminary final last year, only going down by four points after having an easy shot late to win the game, but missing. In round five against the Swans, the Pies couldn't find the goals early on with eight first quarter behinds, but from then on they kicked five goals seven to 15, to win by 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, on Sunday after round five, in a televised reserves game between Collingwood and the Swans at Lakeside Oval, uh, in South Melbourne on the 28th of April, Collingwood Reserves fullback John Burke kicked Swans Ruckman Patrick Foy in the groin and in response to Foy tagging him throughout the game. As field umpire Phil Waite went to report Burke for the incident, Burke kicked and pushed Waite, then made contact with the Collingwood runner and jumped into the stands to attack a Swans fan before being escorted off the ground. Ah. Burke was found guilty of, at the tribunal of kicking an umpire assault and was given the longest suspension in AFL-VFL history, 10 years plus 16 matches, so 239 matches in total, which was commuted in 1992 to 6 years plus 16 matches, 151 matches. He was later charged with two counts of assault by the Victorian police, convicted on both counts in the Paran Magistrates Court and fined $2,000 plus costs. Um, Now, disaster struck the senior team in round seven. Not only did the Lions pummel them by 79 points, but Dacos did his cruciate ligament. David Cloak broke his arm. BT was flattened and had bruised and busted ribs. And Tony Shaw was severely severely hurt. It was a million-dollar mayhem. Round eight, the battered Pies took on the Hawks. uh, And led by a younger brigade because of all the injuries, they built up an early lead. And although the Pies only kicked a goal in the final quarter... Uh, they held the defenders held the Hawks back to earn a memorable 11 point back against the Wall victory. Around this time, the Collingwood cheer squad went on strike after what they felt was harsh treatment by the club's administration, and they refused to make a banner for the game against the Saints. They didn't need the banner though; they let it every change, uh, kicking 24 goals, 18, 162, and a 25 point win. Uh, banners were back though for round 10 against the Dogs, but perhaps the team forgot to show up as the Dogs showed them up. A four-game losing streak saw their dream of finals begin to fade. Round 14, the Pies demolished the Ds at the MCG. Uh, the margin was 72 points. Michael Richardson kicked six. In around 16, in around 15, lost to Essendon. Collingwood player Andrew Witts made his debut wearing the jumper number 65. He played a total of seven games for the Pies in this, and this is the highest regular jumper number in AFL-VFL history. Well, it was up until 2017 when a number of Indigenous players jumped on the number 67 during Indigenous round. Round 16 was BT's was the Brian Taylor show as he kicked a dozen of the best, 12 goals two, in the Pies' 62-point win against the Swans. Yep. The game against the Tigers in round 17 was closer than it should have been with the margin never blowing out too much. BT kicked the winning goal and two South Australians in Mark Williams and Greg Phillips were instrumental in the team's eight-point win. But a loss to the Lions at Vic Park as the away team all but ended their shot at finals. Round 20 was an easy win over the Saints but this was their last win in an injury-riddled, disappointing season. And at the end of all that, our lead goal kicker at uh, Collingwood was, of course, BT with 80. Um, and the Copeland Trophy in 1985 went to Mark Williams for the second time. Jocko. Jocko. And then our final non-finalist, unfortunately, just missing out there, was Geelong. With 12 wins, 10 losses and 100.6%. Um, coached by Tommy Hafey and captained by Neville Bruns. Neville Bruns. Yep. Yeah, Neville Bruns. Um, debutants include Mike, Martin Christensen, Bruce Lindner, Craig Alderice, Michael Schultz, and 
Paul Couch. Paul Couch, yes, of course. So prior to playing with Geelong, Couchy initially tried out with Fitzroy, but he was rejected for being a bit too slow. Uh. Uh, he was recruited from the Warrnambool Football Club and though never blessed with pace and with a very one-sided left foot, co- left foot kick, he had the ability to make position and place his... Um, make position... Sorry. He had the ability to make position and place his team to advantage throughout 12 often knee-injury-riddled years. Right, round one, the Cats charged away to a 28-point win over the Hawks at Waverley to open the season. The mids winning the ball across the centre, Ablett and Jacko with six each. In round four, the Cats and the Roos played a close game at Cardinia with the Roos up by two points at three-quarter time, but led by Gary Ablett and his inaccurate four-goal seven, the Cats kicked six goals in the final quarter to win by 26 points. Round five, the Cats escaped the scare at Moorabbin. Beating the beating the Saints by three points. Ablett with six goals, eight. They had a win over the Demons in round seven, set up by three players. Mark Yates, who set, shut down Brian Wilson. Damien, uh, Darren Flanagan, dominating the ruck. And Gary Ablett up forward with five goals in a 45-point win. Which was even more impressive when you found out that uh, Ablett had been sick in action. He had the flu all week. Ah. When you find out that Ablett had been out of action with the flu all week. In a fiery round nine encounter at the SCG, the Cats took it up to the Swans early, uh, with Cat David Bolton sending Colin Hounsell to the doctors in a behind-the-play clash. Uh, Hounsell received six stitches in the forehead and a possible jaw fracture. Ouch. The Cats led in each quarter with its better teamwork, um, winning by 28 points. In round 10, Geelong trailed each change by 1, 10 and 13 points, but then kicked 11 goals, 7, 73 to 1 goal, 2 in the last quarter to beat the Tigers by 50 points. Their 50-point margin is the largest by a team outscored for each of the first three quarters. In round 12 was a violent round 12 was a violent match between Hawthorne and Geelong, which led to veteran Hawks champion Lee Matthews being charged with assault um, against Neville Bruns. Um, we might talk about a bit, bit more about this in detail in the next episode. Yeah, yeah. Round 13, Tommy Hafey was proud of his Cats after their one-goal win at Victoria Park, saying, For such a young and experienced side to come here to Collingwood and win was a great effort. The Pies were undisciplined in the second quarter and paid for their sloppy quarter. Round 16, a big second half helped the Cats beat the Roos by 40 points at the MCG, as did an accurate Gary Albert who kicked eight goals straight. Round 17, the Cats were unimpressive in their 21-point win over the Saints at Cardinia. Terry Bright kicked four goals but was overshadowed by Lockett at the other end. The difference was the seven-goal seven second quarter the Cats poured in. Ablett was well held, though, by Frawley. Round 18, he was not held. It was a Gary Ablett show at the MCG against the Ds, with the star having 15 shots on goal for nine goals six. Andrew Buse added 34 disposals in a 58-point win. Round 20, in atrocious conditions at Cardinia Park against the Swans, Gary Ablett came to the Cats' rescue yet again, his five goals helping in a 27-point win. And in the final round, Geelong had too many running players for the Lions, including Greg Williams, Shane Williams, Bob Neal, Andrew Buse, who helped the Cats slam on 6-6 in the last quarter to win the match by 23, Ablett kicking five goals. And so the lead goal kicker down at Geelong this year was... Has to be Gary Ablett. Of course, Gary Ablett Sr. with 82, Andrew Buse. Uh, next closest with 42 um, and the Kaji Greaves medal unsurpri- uh, unsurprisingly went to Greg Williams yep. with Gary Ablett Senior coming in second fantastic alright well that gets us to Night Series to the Night Series tell us a little bit a bit about the 1985 Night Series of course what we're always all waiting for yep. the Night Series this year, the 1985 AFC Fosters Football Cup. Yes, it's finally the Fosters it Cup. It is the Fosters Football Cup. That's what That's I remember right. it as. Uh, so, 
Um, similar. Is that what you remember it as? Yeah, as I a do. Kid? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it was Foster's Cup till about 92, 93. Yeah. And then it became the... Was Wizard, it like the I mean, it was a Pura Cup for a while. Wizard the Wizard Cup. Cup. The Nab Cup. Yeah, there, there's been a few, haven't there? Um, so again, we've got a very similar setup to the few years we've had where the state teams qualify. Um, the the, tw- the 12th team... St Kilda again. St Kilda again <laughs> has to qualify against <laughs> a state team. The rest of the league are in and the top two from the Sandful and the Waffle are straight in just to make life easy. Yeah. So our only qualifying game was between St Kilda and Queensland who won the Escort Shield. Tell me the Saints won. Of course they did. Okay. 69 to 165. Okay, so the, so the worst team in the VFL is still almost 100 points better than... Than Queensland, the, the Queensland. entire state. Yeah, okay. Yep. <laughs> um, so round one, we had Carlton versus Melbourne, uh, which Carlton won in a seesawing affair. Richmond versus East Frio. Richmond took out after Frio came out to a good start. Uh, Collingwood beat Sydney very convincingly, uh, 105 to 23. Mm. Hawthorne beat Port Adelaide uh, in a close match um, in Adelaide. Footscray beat North Melbourne uh, in a se- another seesawing game. Fitzroy beat the Swan Districts, yep. uh, 93 to 184. Essendon beat St Kilda. Um, in a bit of a low-scoring affair, 64 to 27. I like that the reigning Premier gets to play like the qualifying game. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. And then Norwood beat Geelong. Oh, hey. So I feel like this might be the first time in a while where we've had a non-VFL team get through to at the final, quarterfinals. Yeah. yeah, at least win a game. So that was at Football Park in Adelaide. Yep. Uh, so almost doubled their score there, 44 to 83. Uh, a quarterfinals were... Most at Waverley and Football Park again. Uh, Norwood getting their game at Football Park, but unfortunately couldn't get the job done against Essendon, who beat them by about 50 points. Essendon got a cruisy run into this. Fitzroy beat Footscray, Hawthorne smashed Collingwood, and Carlton uh, doubled Richmond's score. So the semi finals were Carlton versus Hawthorne, and um, after kicking 0 8 in the first quarter, Hawthorne then managed to find the middle mm. and come out win 115 to 70, and Essendon absolutely punished Fitzroy 125 to 42. So the football world gets another Essendon Hawthorne Essendon grand Hawthorne final. Grand final exactly, and it was a very close game at VFL Park in front of 25,000 people. So not a bad crowd for a night final. Yeah. Uh, but Hawthorne got the jump early and just kept it going. And it was 11-11-77 to Essendon's 10-8-68. So Hawthorne win the game. There are a few things to talk about there. Uh, mm-hmm. Jason Dunstall making his debut. I think he, I've heard he made two debuts. Two debuts, he yeah. certainly did. Yeah, twice, yeah, okay. Yeah. I've seen yeah. It, yeah. So... Uh, he's, he made his debut in Queensland colours. Oh, playing against St Kilda. Playing against St Kilda. Um, he kicked four of Queensland's 10 goals in their qualifying match, but then lost, then signed up with the Hawks <laughs> and made his debut, uh, premiership debut for, in the actual season, but yeah. then kicked two more goals in Hawthorne's first game of the 85 <laughs> Night Series. Um and then also, uh, there was another um, player who debuted twice, Scott McIver, who oh, yeah. played um, for yeah, Queensland and then, and then Fitzroy. Fitzroy. Um, 
the Sw- the Swan Districts, as we mentioned, they're back. We're, we're back. Yeah. Um, but I don't banishing. after their banishment. Yeah. Um, and both of the teams in the grand final uh, were led by their vice captains. Um, Michael Tuck was acting captain due to Matthews being mm. deregistered. Yes, we'll uh, we'll get to that we'll next talk episode. About. And Watto was captain for Essendon due to the absence of Terry Danaher Watto. through injury. Tim Watson. Tim Watson. Yeah. Um, Dipper was the best on ground in the grand final. Is there, a, is there a prize for that? There is. A portable cassette player. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. And um, at Football Park... Uh, at the game between Hawthorne and Adelaide, there was an absolute shootout uh, between Brereton and Dwayne Russell. Dwayne, uh, big Dwayne over yes, the end. Each of them kicking seven goals for their respective teams. Nice. Uh, the other big hauls throughout the series were Greg Burns from St Kilda kicking eight goals in that qualifying match against Queensland, Shane Hullis for Fitzroy kicking eight versus one districts, and Richard Osborne kicking seven against F- Footscray. Yeah. So Osborne was the lead goal kicker with 14 goals from his three games. Okay, great. And there you go. That's the night series, the Fosters Football Cup. Yes, Fosters Cup. Well, Charlie, um, that's the first part of the 1985 season. Yes. Um, some interesting stuff there. That Swan stuff is full on. I know. It's amazing um, to think that like that was all that was all happening, and like it was a test, right? Yeah. And it obviously. In hindsight, well, failed. We want money, so that, it kind of it propped the league up for a few yeah. years, isn't it? But I, but I wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm quite glad. Like, it's great that it actually worked out the way it did. Maybe not for some people involved, <laughs> but imagine this: if it was, if privatization did work well, and all the clubs became private. and all the clubs became yeah. private, what, what would we be living in now? Yeah. So it's, it's, we might have reaped the benefits of a poor first shot at it. Yeah, you're probably right. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm. Looking forward to talking about those finalists though, Timmy. Yes. Yep. Right. Can't wait till next week. Next week, our last uh, last episode on 985. Oh, unbelievable. Then, yeah, the and then coming. into the new thing. Yeah. All right. Well, hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.